0: Our meditation this evening from the 15th chapter, the Gospel of Mark, gives to us the historic narrative of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come into this passion season, it is good for us once again to have our attention drawn specifically and directly to this climax of Christ's passion for his people. Tonight I want to really think about six hours. Six hours that accomplished the greatest work ever done. Six hours that changed everything. In six days, God created the world. In six hours, Jesus Changed it. In six hours, six incredible hours that ticked God's eternal redemptive purpose into time, the Lord Jesus fatally crushed the serpent's head and purchased eternal salvation for all of God's elect from every age, from every place on the earth. Mark's timeline of the crucifixion is unique. Both Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, mark the 6th to the ninth hour as a time of darkness. But Mark adds the information to us that the crucifixion began in the 3rd hour. From the 3rd hour all the way to the ninth hour, We have the Lord Jesus on the cross. The last six hours of the incarnate God's humiliation. The last six hours of the fullness of time. When God having sent forth his son. Made of a woman under the law to redeem those that were under the curse of that law. I say in the last six hours. Of the fullness of time, our attention here is fixed. But I was taken particularly, struck with those two views of the cross that Mark frames with the reference to time. From 9 a.m. to noon, the cross was in the light. And there were things that were taking place at the cross, around the cross, that could be seen. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, the cross was in total darkness. And something was happening in that darkness as the world became engulfed in total darkness that none could see except the Father. So I want us to consider the cross this evening from those two perspectives. I want us to consider the cross in the light and then the cross in the dark. Six hours, six incredible hours that changed everything. So our attention first then is to the cross in the light. For three hours, the cross was in plain view and there are things that we can see that ought to stir our hearts to wonder, ought to stir our hearts to love and devotion and praise. As the old hymn writer said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, how can we not survey that cross without then pouring that contempt upon all of our pride? Let us look at the cross in the brightness of those three hours of light. We can see first of all, that the cross was in a conspicuous place. They brought him to Golgotha. Golgotha is simply the Aramaic word for skull, the Greek word cranium, the Latin word Calvary, but they brought him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And this was a prominent place for it was the custom in that day to execute criminals in a most conspicuous place this was not a work that was done in secret it refers most likely to that small hill outside of jerusalem whose very shape resembled a skull today it's a tourist attraction a bus depot at the very base of that hill but they're overlooking Those buses, you can see what appears to be this skull, the traditional place where Jesus died. But it was a place, I say, that was clearly seen by all that entered into the city. It's a place of public shame. My guess is, as those that were coming into the city, some would cast their glance upon that hill and turn away in horror as they saw that terrible scene. Others perhaps were straining their necks to get a better look at what was taking place. And remember, this was the time of Passover. This was the time when the population was to congregate in Jerusalem, so Jerusalem would have been packed with people, and they would have been streaming past this hill, this skull-like hill, Outside the city. And no doubt there were many that saw him there. That had seen him before. Many that passed by that day were. Those that were in the congregation perhaps that. Received the fish and the loaves. On the Mount of Beatitudes. There were many there without doubt that had seen many of his miracles. There were many there that had listened to many of his sermons and heard his teachings. That teaching that was with such authority, like, unlike the scribes of the day. And as they walked by, they, is that Jesus? Is that, why is Jesus there? Oh, it was a prominent place. A place of public shame but it was also a prophetic place for its location was outside the city. Outside the city was the place of uncleanness. You go back to the Old Testament and you see all of the regulations that were given in terms of those that were regarded as spiritually unclean, be they lepers or for whatever other reason, ostracized from the community. They were outside the camp, outside the city, place of shame. The guilt offering, the sin offering, one of the peculiarities of those two offerings after the sacrifice was made then the corpses the carcasses of those animals that had been slain were taken outside the city and they're burned destructively a place of uncleanness a place of uncleanness but there was jesus there was jesus and those that saw him those that witnessed that horrific scene they knew the significance They knew the significance of what it was to be outside the city. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied that they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. And so they saw those three hanging upon their individual crosses, knowing the word that they were transgressors and they were in a place of transgression. They assumed and they interpreted Jesus to be one of those transgressors, a place of uncleanness. Oh, he was unclean. In these moments, in these hours, Jesus indeed was unclean, not because of his own sin. He was pure and spotless and undefiled in every way, innocent in every way. Under the law, keeping that law in every way, perfect he was in every way. But yet, as he's now hanging upon that old rugged cross, having taken upon himself the sins of his people, having taken upon himself the transgressions and the guilt of his people, he's there. He's there, suffering the Lamb of sacrifice, taking the guilt of the guilty regarded unclean for their sake, unclean for our sake. As at the very place of the cross, puts his suffering shame before us. Again, as the hymn said, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood. The very place, a conspicuous place, speaks to us of the public shame and the imputed guilt that our Savior was bearing for his people. But as we continue to look at the cross and the light, we see also the corrupt company that Jesus was keeping, the corrupt company. Pilate had unwittingly fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53, that he would be numbered. This suffering servant, this suffering lamb of sacrifice, Isaiah said would be numbered with the transgressors. And I say Pilate unwittingly fulfilled that word of prophecy. Oh, ignorantly of so doing, but he did it out of hatred for the Jews. The Jews had continually persisted and insisted that he would execute Jesus. And contrary to his better judgment, he gave way to those Jews and sentenced Christ to this cruel death upon the cross, conspired with Herod against the Lord and against his Christ, against, I say, his better judgment. But he was not going to do this without heaping, he thought, a bit of shame upon the Jews himself. And so there was that superscription written in Latin, in Greek, and in Hebrew on the cross. The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. What could have been more insulting to the Jews than to have that declaration that here's your king. Here's your king and you see him there in that place of shame, that place of ridicule. Oh, and the Jews took that as an insult. One of the other Gospels, John tells us that they sought to get Pilate to change the wording. He said he was, but Pilate says, no, what I've written, I've written. But I say in his effort to bring insult to the Jews, he brought even further ignominy to the Lord Jesus, heaping more shame upon him as he now places this king of the Jews between two thieves, on either side, two thieves. But you know, it was not unusual, was it? It was not unusual for Jesus to be found in the company of sinners. He sought them out. I came to seek and to save those that were lost. And he entered into the home of sinners. It was not unusual for Jesus to be found in the company of sinners during the entire course of his public ministry. Ah, but here was the difference. Not only is he there in the company of sinners, but now I say regarded as a sinner himself. That one that knew no sin became sin. He who is pure and undefiled, now receiving the wages. Of the sinner. Well, I've heard it said, and I understand, I suppose, the sentiment of how it is said, but it bothers me some. I've heard it said that on the cross, Jesus was the greatest sinner that ever lived. It's not true. Christ never committed a sin. There was no sin that Jesus ever committed. His sin was not that which he had done, but it was the imputation God regarded and God imputed. There's the theological word, yeah? God imputed all of the sins and all of the guilt of the people for whom Christ was dying upon Jesus. And there he stood guilty, not because of his own sins, not because of any transgression of the law that he had ever committed, No, he was still that one that was pure and innocent and spotless. But now on the cross, he takes to himself. He takes to himself the guilt of every elect. He takes to himself the transgressions, the chastisement for the accomplishment of our peace was placed upon him. Oh, we have the corrupt company, that Jesus was there in the midst of, counted as a transgressor for the sake of his people. But as the light shines upon the cross, we can also see and we can hear something of the crass mockery that was leveled against Jesus. Mockery that was deliberate, that was brutal. His dying hours are now disturbed. Dying agonies are intensified by the mockery of those that were seeing him. Psalm 22 that we've been singing together describes something prophetically of that mockery in bestial terms. The bulls of Bashan were there around him. Those strong bulls of Bashan. Those wild dogs were there yakking and nipping at him upon the cross, bestial images the psalmist uses to describe how the people were reacting to this one upon the cross. And what a demonstration that is of the depths of depravity as sinners that are expressing now their disdain for the only savior of sinners. Puny creatures that are so taunting the creature. And what a contrast. In eternity, throughout eternity, there was the second person of the Holy Trinity upon that heavenly throne with the seraphim, those throne attendants that were constantly proclaiming back and forth, back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Jesus was the one upon that throne, he tells us in John chapter 12. But what a contrast. This one that had been listening, had been hearing eternally the song of praises. Holy, holy, holy. Now hears the blasphemy. He hears the mockery of puny man. By the spectators. Oh, perhaps many of them were just curious and careless by the religious clergy that were blaspheming him, by the pagan soldiers who had no clue as to who Jesus was and even who he claimed to be, but joining in the mockery and the ridicule of this one that was hanging in such shame upon the cross. Have even the condemned thieves, those on either side, they began to join in Accusing him and upbraiding him, reviling him. All the reactions, the reactions, the mockery from those that were seeing Jesus in the light of the cross. But how one responds to the cross is always going to be a test. It's going to to be that which determines and that which reveals one's eternal destiny. To mock the cross may be the majority opinion. Certainly that's where we are today. Are we not living today where there is such a widespread mockery of true religion? But those who see with the eye of faith See here, one that is precious by the blood of Christ is a scandal. It's a scandal to the Jews or to the Jews and to the Romans or the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. How precious it is. Is there a more precious sight? Is there more precious sight for God's people? And to see that suffering, that blood shedding of our Savior upon the cross. They wanted to see something stupendous. Did you see that in verse 32? Come down from the cross. That we may see and believe. Do something stupendous. Just do something stupendous here, and then we will believe. They said seeing is believing, but we know the believing is seeing. They had seen many of the miracles of Christ. How many stupendous things had Christ done already for those three odd years of his public ministry? The sick were healed, the dead were raised. Miracle after miracle to identify him as The Son of God as the Messiah. Oh, stupendous things. But yet the hardness of the heart. The hardness of the heart and the blindness of the eye. Seeing they could not see. And hearing they could not hear. Their ears were stopped. Their eyes were smeared over, Isaiah says. Seeing something stupendous would have done nothing. Because their heart indeed was dead. They wanted sight, but it's faith and it's believing that enables us to see. So we see this crass mockery, but as the light is shining upon the cross, we can also see something of the cruel suffering. Verse 25 says it all. They crucified him. What a cruel, what an inhuman, what a hard way to die, lingering, painful, excruciating. Can we see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down? And did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose? So rich a crowd. What cruel suffering. Verse 23. They. The very beginning. Offered him a narcotic. They brought the wine mingled with myrrh. Given. At the very beginning of this transaction to. Somehow dull the pain. To dull the agony. But Jesus refused it. He refused it. He rejected that narcotic. He was determined by eternal resolve to accept the full lot of the undeserved sin, the torment, the anguish, the punishment, and a suffering that was, I say, beyond our comprehension. The crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. You know, those that were on either side of Jesus were suffering the same death. They were on the same kind of cross and going through the same kind of agony. But yet how infinitely different, how infinitely different is the cross of Christ because of that one that was hanging there. Oh, they were getting what they deserved. They got what they deserved and the one thief came to acknowledge that. We're getting what we deserve as that one thief was able to look to that one next to him and saw him to be that one that had done nothing out of place. That one that was perfect and converted there in the last and dying moments of his life. Suffering was real and intensified by the very fact that we have on the cross the God-man taking the full brunt. Taking the full brunt of every suffering as the blood was shed. A suffering that was real. A suffering that was vicarious. A suffering that was redemptive. You think of Paul's definition of the gospel that we have in First Corinthians 15, the first component of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. A real historic death, a vicarious death for us, redemptive because of our sins, to deal with sins. He became unrighteous that we might be made righteous. He took upon himself our sins That we might know something of his righteousness. The cruel suffering, the chastisement with a view to our peace was upon him. The cross in the light. But at the sixth hour, the sixth hour, verse 33. When the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We come now to consider the cross in the dark. Something was done on the cross outside the sight of man. A transaction that was beyond our comprehension as now the light of the world was being eclipsed with the wrath of God, the fullness of the wrath of God, it was poured out in fullness of infinite fury on the beloved son of his bosom, who had taken the sins of his people, took the chastisement of our peace. I'm not saying saying that there was no divine wrath until the sixth hour. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that the darkness here reminds us very vividly of the theological truth that there was something being done on the cross that was Godward, that was Godward. There was something taking place on the cross that was too sacred for mortal eyes to behold. As now, now... During the entire six hours. But I say the darkness emphasizes this for us. There was a Godward business. That was being done. We believe. We can't see it. But we do believe that in that darkness. That justice was being exacted. That Christ bore our sin. In his own body on the tree. The blood shedding death was the only way that God could be both just and the justifier. When we speak of the death of Christ, we think of those two great aspects of his death. The work of his death. On the one hand, there was propitiation. Big word, yeah. Big word, propitiation. The appeasement. The satisfaction of the wrath of God against the sins of his people. There was propitiation. There's the God word effect of the atonement. But the manward effect was expiation, the removal of sin, the cleansing from sin. But the expiation depended upon the propitiation. It was only because God was satisfied. It was only because God was appeased in his wrath against the sins of his people. that now the blood of Christ can wash us, can cleanse us from every guilt, from every stain. Justice was being exacted. Sin demanded death. The atonement demands suffering. And on the cross, on the cross this was the execution of the father to his son. Zechariah makes that amazing statement. In prophecy, Zechariah is speaking, the Lord is speaking. And he says, Awake, O sword. Awake, O sword, against my fellow, against this one that is my equal. Awake, O sword. It is the Lord bidding the sword to be used against his son. The prophet Isaiah in that great 53rd chapter that was written as though Isaiah was at the very foot of the cross. Verse 10 it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush him. That is, it was the will of God. That word pleasure has the idea of the decree of God. It was the decree of God to bruise him, to crush him. Oh yes, he was delivered into the hands of wicked men. We see the betrayal of Judas. We see the... The, the, the intrigue of those fake trials that were going on among the Jews and taking him to Pilate and to Herod. Oh, he was delivered by the hands of wicked men, yes, but it was according access to the foreordained knowledge, the foreordained purpose of God. Oh, the love of God, yes, evident in sending forth his son. But there's no greater display of the justice of God. And the cross, as God commanded the sword, inflexible justice, inflexible justice, now being leveled against His son. And in the darkness, as the ninth hour approached, in the darkness, piercing piercing that darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Impossible for us to fathom that cry of dereliction. Forsaken. And why? But answering that question brings us to the very heart of Of the atonement. For Christ was forsaken so that those for whom he was forsaken might be accepted. We are accepted as believers in the beloved. A forsaking that was real. A forsaking that was necessary. We confessed this evening our belief that Jesus descended into hell. But we interpret that as our Heidelberg Confession Catechism so interprets that hell came to Calvary. And there on the cross, in the darkness, in the darkness, forsaken as hell itself comes to Jesus. The cross is the solution to that dilemma as to how a holy God can forgive sins and yet be holy. Justice was exacted. But we also believe in the darkness that justice was satisfied. Christ did not die in vain. He accomplished in that death what he set out to accomplish. As he suffered, as he bore the sins of his people for the joy that was set before him, he endured the sufferings of the cross, Hebrew says, for the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? We know that in that eternal council, the Father promised a Son, a people promised inheritance. Isaiah says, coach the Lord, and he says to Jesus Christ, the coming Lamb of God, if you make your soul, if you make your soul an offering for sin, then you will see your seed and prolong your days. Here's the covenant. Here's the contract between the Father and the Son. You make your soul an offering for sin and you will see your seed. I would submit to you that the seed was the joy that was set before him. Oh, what an amazing truth that is. If you're a believer here, if you're a believer here tonight on the cross, Jesus, you were part of the joy that enabled him to endure the suffering, to take the pain, to endure the agony for the joy that was set before him. He endured the suffering. He entered into heaven. Hebrews chapter 9 speaks of the Lord taking the evidence of his sacrifice and presenting that sacrifice, entering in behind the veil into the very presence of God to make that offering. Hebrews 6 then tells us that as he went into that place behind the veil, he took with him our anchor our anchor of hope that is both sure and steadfast and he takes that anchor and he lodges that anchor into the very mercy seat takes his people with him but he enters into heaven he enters into heaven into you know, the very presence of God to present the evidence of his sacrifice and to symbolize that a picture of that we have in our historic narrative When Christ gave up the ghost. Voluntarily. The veil of the temple. Was rent in twain. From the top. To the bottom. You remember the significance of the veil. And that structure of the temple. That structure of the tabernacle. And then the temple. Between the holy place. And the most holy place. Was that thick curtain. Some say that curtain was as thick as a man's hand in width. Thick curtain that separated the holy place where the priests would do their daily operations. And behind that veil was just the Ark of the Covenant, that climactic object lesson of the presence of God with his people. And only the high priest could enter into that one day of the year in the Day of Atonement secluded. And at three o'clock, now at three o'clock, the priests busy doing their priestly stuff in the holy place. Supernaturally, miraculously, from the top to the bottom. That veil is torn asunder, symbolizing now the freedom of access The freedom of access, the obstacles now are gone. The freedom of access into the very presence of God through the sacrifice that had just taken place outside the city. The veil was rent. And so it is. So it is that the way is opened up. The way to God is open. Oh, there's restrictions. But the way to God is opened, and it's opened only through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Tragically, tradition has it that the Jews mended the curtain, put it back together. Some secular historians from the period say that when Titus, the Roman general came, Now, some 40 years after the crucifixion, when Titus came and destroyed the temple and pilfered the stuff from the temple, and he took his sword, and he cut that veil, which indicated the veil was again in place, some 40 years at least after the crucifixion. All the hardness of those hearts, the hardness of the heart of unbelief that would do what they could do to reverse what God had done. But that was just a symbolic gesture. The truth is, the truth is that the veil is still rent and that Jesus going through that veil is the trailblazer that takes his people to that place behind the veil. The work that was accomplished on the cross of Christ. Cross, six hours. Six incredible hours that accomplished the work of redemption, that paid the price. Of the sins of his people six incredible hours in the light in the dark the question comes to each of us as we survey the cross as we survey that wondrous cross Does it cause us to pour contempt on all of our pride? To come to the end of ourselves and to see Jesus as the only way, the only truth, the only life, and to lay hold of him by faith and to praise him and thank him for what he has done for us? Or are you there still mending up the veil, refusing? Refusing and rejecting, mocking by your rejection. This Prince, this Savior. May God help you and God help me to see Jesus. Amen.